Now, I wonder if you have ever uh, set out on a journey before, uh, a longer road that you were familiar with, expecting it to be uh, an entirely uneventful event, only to find uh, that something really unexpected occurs. Uh, Well, I had an experience like that uh, some months ago, uh, travelling along the M5 to Worcester, something I'd done many times. Uh, Everything was going really smoothly and uh, within speed limits, of course, uh, when suddenly the traffic started to slow and eventually came to a complete standstill. Uh, And it became obvious the reason for that uh, as I saw some smoke curling up behind a bend in the road, uh, which it transpired had come from a furniture van that had caught fire. Uh, Thankfully, no one was injured, and after about an hour's wait while the uh, fire brigade came and sorted it out, I was able to continue on my way. Now, the part of our passage uh, that Alan's read for us that we're going to be considering today, uh, which is verses 35 to 41, uh, tells us about another seemingly mundane journey that turned into something that was anything but mundane and had a result far more dramatic and significant than a hold-up on the motorway. Now, in last Sunday morning's service, uh, Jeremy told us about the parable of the different types of soil uh, that Jesus taught to the people who gathered about him on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And in our passage, uh, the first part uh, that we heard, uh, Jesus was telling other parables uh, about the kingdom of God. And it must have been a very busy and exhausting day for him, ministering to what in verse 1 we're told was a great multitude. And then going on afterwards to give more detailed explanations to his disciples. So, when evening had come, he said to his disciples, let us cross over to the other side. That's the other side of the Sea of Galilee, that large lake in the northern part of Israel. So they were going to travel from Capernaum, where Jesus had been ministering, over to the land of the Gadarenes. Uh, where he was to heal a demon-possessed man, we read about in chapter 5. And that was a distance of about five miles. Now, we don't know exactly why he wanted to go there, uh, whether it was specifically uh, to heal that demon-possessed man, or whether it was as an opportunity to find a quiet place where he and the disciples could get some rest. Because we read of him doing that in Mark chapter 6, after a busy time going away to get some rest. But whatever the reason was, the disciples were happy to follow his instructions. And in fact, Matthew, in his record of this account, tells us that when he, Jesus, got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Now, the disciples had been with Jesus uh, for some time now. They'd seen him healing the sick, 
casting out demons and forgiving sin and teaching with an authority that astonished people. And the disciples had faith in him. They trusted him. And so when he said, let's get in the boat, they followed him into the boat. Now for at least four of them, uh, Peter, Andrew, James and John, uh, that would have been nothing unusual uh, because we know they were fishermen and they fished on Galilee. So nothing unusual for them. But we don't know about the others. But as verse 35 tells us, when evening had come, they all set off on this five-mile journey to the country of the Gadarenes. Verse 36 tells us that they didn't go alone, but that other little boats were with him. And then Jesus, tired as he was from his day's activity, and no doubt soothed by the rocking of the boat, falls asleep on a pillow in the stern of the boat. Now, as Alan uh, mentioned in his uh, first part of the service, uh, we had Peter Williams here on Tuesday uh, telling us about how we can uh, believe the Gospels. Uh, Interesting things in them that show their reliability. And he was talking about things like the accuracy of the geographical descriptions that we find in the New Testament. And also the way that people's names are used that that show a real authenticity. Now, in our passage today, we find another two uh, items that show us the accuracy of what we're reading. And we see them in the references to the other little boats that accompany the disciples and the pillow that Jesus rested his head on. These things are what the Bible scholar Richard Borkman refers to as irrelevant details. They're irrelevant details because they're things that don't actually move the story along. If they weren't in it, it wouldn't affect the story. But the fact that they are in it shows that they belong to an eyewitness account. They're the sort of things that eyewitnesses put in. And they're not the sort of things that if you were going to make a story up in those times, that you would have thought to include. So when we see those things in this passage, we know that we're reading an eyewitness account. The account of somebody who was really there. So, as the boat sails along, we're told that it was caught up in a great windstorm, in verse 37. And that stirred the lake up to such an extent that the waves were breaking over the side of the boat. So much so that the boat started to fill with water. Now, storms like this were were a feature of uh, the Sea of Galilee, of this lake, because of its geography. Uh, It's surrounded by hills, and on the eastern side has 
precipitous mountains, or precipitous cliffs, rather. To the north, there is a mountain, Mount Hermon, which rises 9,200 feet into the air. Now, as you can imagine, at the top of that, it's going to be pretty cold. Cold air descends, and as the cold air comes down the mountain, through the channels between the hills, and meets the warm air, air on the surface of the water, violent storms can erupt. In fact, the, the Greek word we've got here translated as windstorm actually means whirlwind or hurricane. So what happened was an enormously fierce event. And the fact that we're told that the boat was already filling with water seems to indicate that the water was coming in faster than the disciples could bail it out. No matter what they did, the boat was filling. And so they started to panic. This wasn't what they were used to. In Mark 6 and Matthew 14, we read of another time when a similar event happened when they were on the lake. We're told that the weather was against them, but it was nothing like we read here. On that occasion, the wind is described as contrary. Whereas here, it's a hurricane. So the disciples go to Jesus and wake him and say, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And this would probably have included those four experienced fishermen. Otherwise, you'd have thought they would have just told the others, keep calm, carry on bailing. But this situation was serious. They couldn't stop the boat from filling with water. And because of that, they were fearful. They were fearful that the boat would be overwhelmed and they would drown. So they go to Jesus and they ask for his help. And what help he gave them. Rising to his feet, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace! Be still. With the absolutely astounding result that the wind ceased and there was a great calm. When Jane and I got married, uh, we went to the Greek island of Egina, just off the coast of Athens, for our honeymoon. Now, the journey to get from Athens uh, to the island was made by boat. And we weren't able uh, to make that journey on the scheduled day because of a storm in the area that had meant neither of the harbours on the island were safe to dock at. So we had to wait a day until that had passed. The following day, we were able to travel. Now, bearing in mind the storm had gone, the sea was still so rough that as we travelled along, at one point, one of the crew members yelled out as the boat made a lurch to the side. It was still that rough a day later. 
So a day after that storm had passed, the sea was still so rough, it causes a crew member to shout out. And yet here, a storm of hurricane force is reduced by Jesus to a great calm. Not in a day or two days, but instantly. No wonder the disciples ask, who can this be? As Mark wrote his gospel, he gradually reveals who Jesus is. And this account of the calming of the storm is a major step forward for Jesus' disciples. As Mark shows that Jesus is God in human form. In fact, the account starts uh, with an example of Jesus' humanity. As we see him, tired from his day's work, fall asleep in the boat as it crosses the lake. So as we consider what Jesus says and what he does, we should never think of him as someone who doesn't understand us. Who is so far above and beyond us that he doesn't know what it's like to live a normal life on earth as we do. Because he does know. Here we see that he experienced tiredness. But in other parts of the Bible we see him experienced hunger and sadness. The love of friends and betrayal by friends. In fact, the author of the book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus was in all points tempted as we are. He faced the same challenges. He knew the same problems and difficulties. But yet, he was without sin. He never gave in, never did the wrong thing. But he knows what it's like to live as we do. So at the start of this account of Jesus' journey across the lake, we see his humanity. But then at the conclusion of the story, we see that staggering display of his deity as he calms the storm simply by speaking to it. Now, ancient cultures considered that the sea was uncontrollable by any power but God. And Mark reveals Jesus' deity to us by showing him doing what God had done in the past. In the Old Testament, uh, we find the book of Psalms. And Psalm 89, verse 9, says of God, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. And Psalm 65, verse 7, tells us, You who still the noise of the seas the noise of their waves. So what God had done in olden times, Jesus was doing then. He was demonstrating the awesome power of God 
to control nature. And this should come as no surprise because Jesus created nature. As the Apostle Paul tells us, for by him, that's Jesus, all things were created that are in heaven and are on earth. The disciples hadn't been blown away by the hurricane force level of wind that assaulted them. But they were completely, as we might say, blown away by the display of Jesus' divine power. So firstly, Jesus calms the storm-tossed waters. And then we see him trying to calm the storm-tossed emotions of his disciples as he says to them, Why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? Now, when he says this, he isn't saying that the disciples don't actually have any faith at all, but that rather that they're not exercising the faith that they do have. As Matthew records in his account of the incident, uh, Jesus said to them, Oh, you of little faith. And as one of the commentators puts it, the disciples have a forgetful faith rather than a complete lack of faith. Now, the Greek word uh, translated here as faith means firm persuasion. And the disciples certainly had a firm persuasion, a real trust in Jesus. After all, they'd given up everything to follow him. The problem was that their faith had only gone as far as leading them to follow Jesus into the boat. It hadn't really engaged with his statement, let us cross over to the other side. Because if it had, they wouldn't have need to fear perishing. Because if they had engaged with that statement, they would know if Jesus says, we're going to cross over to the other side, they were going to cross over to the other side. And there was nothing that could stop them. In Luke's account of this event, he records Jesus as saying, where is your faith? Meaning, why aren't you exercising the faith that you've got? But it can be helpful to look at that statement in a slightly different way. From the angle of, where have you put your faith? What's your faith in? As the American author and pastor Tim Keller puts it, the critical factor of their faith is not in its strength, but in its object. Now, it may have been that if you were there and you'd ask the disciples, how do you know you're going to get to the other side of the lake? Uh, They might have said, 
they were going in a good strong boat. And uh, four of them were experienced sailors. So they could be confident of getting to the other side. Well, really, what they should have said was, we're confident of getting to the other side because that is where Jesus has said we're going. Now, for each of us, uh, life can seem like a journey across a lake where we trust our boat, our boat made up of our skills or money or power or whatever we consider important, to get us across the lake, a lake to our desired destination without giving any thought to God, the God who made the lake, who created us, and to whom we owe a debt of thanks for all the gifts and provisions that he gives us. The air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the abilities and talents that we possess. But rather than thanks, what we do is just ignore God. We like to ignore his instructions that show us how we can flourish. And instead, we choose to live by our own rules. And we don't realise that living like this is going to take us straight into a storm of divine judgment. A storm that will sweep us far away from God and his love and into hell when we die. And there's nothing that we can do about that ourselves. The only thing we can do is to ask Jesus to come into our boat. To come and calm that storm of judgment for us. And he can do that. He can do that because when he came to earth 2,000 years ago, he took the punishment we deserve for all our wrongdoing against God. He took that punishment when he died on the cross, rising three days later in new and everlasting life. And he can give us that new life, a life of forgiveness and peace with God. If we will only put our faith in him, saying sorry for the wrong we've done, turning away from it and seeking to live for him. Abandoning that attitude expressed by the poet William Ernest Henley in his verses Invictus, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. No, we need to abandon that and instead hand the control of our lives over to Jesus, who loves us so much, he was willing to die for us. And who will guide us through life and land us safely in heaven when our time on earth is done. If we want to escape the storm of God's judgment, we need, as it were, to have Jesus in our boat. But 
as the disciples found out, that doesn't mean that we will be exempt from all the storms of life. Because often those storms can be used by Jesus to help us to grow in our faith, to grow closer to him. As we see him either calm the storm or go through the storm with us. Now I don't know what storms you're going through today. Whether you're managing to sail through them or whether you feel that your boat is filling with water and you fear you're perishing. But whatever your situation when the storms of trouble come upon you, you should do what the disciples did and go to Jesus for help. He is the Lord of creation. So no matter what storms are battering you, trust him. He has the power to see you through, to steal them, to bring you through, to give you the strength and the comfort and the guidance that you need day by day. If you have put your faith in Jesus to forgive your sin, you can be assured that he will bring you safely through that ultimate storm of judgment. And that if he will do that, you can trust him to bring you through all those smaller storms that we face in our daily lives. If you, if I, realise how secure we are in Jesus' hands, we know that security now. It will help us to know a calmness, a peace and an assurance as we go through those storms of life. As the modern hymn puts it, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast. For my saviour loves me so. He will hold me We're going to sing our final hymn now, and this is number 808, if you're using a book. It's the new version of uh, The Lord's My Shepherd, with the refrain, I will trust in you alone. Number 
thank you indeed uh, that your goodness will indeed lead us home. Father, we thank you that as we put our faith in the Lord Jesus and repent of our sin, that we can know peace with you. Uh, we can know you holding us safely in your hand. Father, we pray for any here today that haven't yet taken that step, uh, that you would touch their hearts, that you would give them that gift of faith, that they might believe on the Lord Jesus and be saved. And for those of us that have uh, taken that step, Father, may we rejoice in all that we have in him. Oh, Father, we praise you this morning in his wonderful name.